They say poker is a hard way to make an easy living. This is the podcast about people that make poker work for them. This is Mid-Stakes Living. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of Mid-Stakes Living. My name is Derek. You may know me online as Killing Bird, and I am joined by my partner in crime in this endeavor, Mr. Matthew Hunt. How are you, sir? I'm very well, very well. Uh, you guys may know me as the Ginger 45 on TPE and elsewhere. Uh, I've been, been making videos for the site for a little while, and I'm very excited to, to get cracking on this new podcast for you guys. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. I think it's going to be a little bit different than uh, than some of the other podcasts out there, and, and that's kind of why I'm excited about it. And and we, you know, you and I have been sort of hashing this idea around for the last couple of months about our vision for the podcast and whatnot. Um, but it was really kind of your brainchild. So why don't you, um, you know, maybe talk a little bit about what you see uh, as the vision for the podcast and what people can expect to hear, you know, in coming episodes. Sure. Yeah, I I think what I wanted to do really was. Uh, show people a little bit more of, of, of what it's like to be a professional poker player and what that actually means and what that entails. Just because I think there's, there's a lot of misconceptions out there, particularly among the, the community of, of recreational poker players or kind of semi-pro players, if you will, of, of how, how pros live. And, and there's, a big, there's a big perception of this divide between pros and amateurs so, or pros and recreational players. Um, so I wanted to peel back the curtain a little bit and, and maybe help identify some of the spots where the lines are actually really blurred. And, you know, poker players are just, you know, people who do a job the same as everybody else. And to kind of explore, explore people's motivations a little bit, explore their, you know, daily lifestyles and, and identify a little bit about, you know, kind of what the specifics are of, of being a poker pro is, is something that I think is, is really important because it's going to help people understand a little bit more about poker and, and maybe decide whether it's something that they want to do for a living, you know? So if we can, we can help a few people, learn a little bit more about what what it is to be a poker pro then uh then i think that's that's going to be a a really useful thing so that's what i, I want to do with this podcast and hopefully we'll get a chance to to work through some of those things yeah it should be it should be very cool and while i think we will we won't be covering as much strategy as you know some other podcasts do and there's some podcasts out there that do it very well so we encourage people to check those out um i do think a lot of the things that people learn through mid-stakes living will help their game, you know, just not in the standard where, you know, what should my three bet sizing be, you know, um, you know, so, you know, we'll probably cover topics like bankroll management and, you know, health and, um, you know, various topics like that, that very much contribute to making money in poker, just Absolutely. not in a very strategic way. It'll be stuff that hopefully helps your long-term ROI rather than, you know, it's not going to give you the edge to, well, I suppose it might do, but it's unlikely to give you the edge to, you know, make more money this week. But, in the long term, hopefully a lot of the stuff you learn from this podcast will positively influence your perception on poker, your your motivation, your you know perspective on life, and hopefully allow you to make more money in the long term. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we're you know we'll be bringing in different uh, guests over the coming episodes, and um, you know very much the content of this of this podcast will kind of be driven by by who those guests are. And you've lined up a great one for our very first episode. Talk a little bit about who we got coming in. Sure, yeah. We have none other than uh, Mickey Peterson, who is known as Mement underscore Maury on PokerStars and elsewhere. Uh, he's a very well-known uh, high-stakes and mid-stakes MTT grinder, member of PokerStars team online. Uh, he's a guy I've known for quite a while. Uh, I don't know him too well, but I'm very excited to be able to bring him onto the podcast because I, I just m- was able to meet up with him in person for the first time a few months back. So, uh you know, it's uh, it's very cool to be able to bring on someone with the profile of Mickey onto the podcast for our first episode, and I'm sure as a as a hardworking pro, he'll uh, he'll be 
able to deliver some some great insight into the lifestyle of a poker pro. So it's going to be great. Yeah, looking forward to it. So uh, without any more delay, why don't we, uh, now that we've kind of introduced the, the vision for the show, why don't we jump right into our very first episode? Absolutely, let's go. So hey guys, welcome to the first episode of Midspace Living. Uh, I'm very pleased to introduce our, our first guest on the show. Uh, that's going to be Mickey Peterson of Stars Team Online. So welcome, Mehmet Mori. Hey, hey guys! Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, thanks for being with us, Mickey. So, uh, so I want to uh, I want to first introduce kind of the topics that we're going to be talking about uh, on this on this kind of a podcast. Um, we're we're mostly going to be dealing with a lot of subjects that maybe some other podcasts wouldn't cover. So, um, some of them are going to be related to some of the stuff that's that's going on now in your career, Mickey. They're not going to be very strat orientated, and a lot of them are going to be very um, very much about kind of the lifestyle of. of what someone like yourself who's who's been around poker for quite a while the the kind of lifestyle that um that you get up to these days so firstly i kind of i'm kind of curious how you how you first got into poker and how you started doing it full time as as something that you could take seriously because a lot of people have different parts into that so do you mind uh do you mind giving us a little intro to how you got into it yeah sure i mean it basically i guess like a lot of people i was uh, uh when i was like 16 around that i was playing a lot of uh of magic the gathering like the card game right uh-huh. and um and i had a lot of fun with that and met a lot of people and got to travel and stuff like that and then some of the people who were really good at that game kind of just stopped playing and it was like because they moved on to poker and it was just like right. like magic is fun but you can i mean you can make a little bit of money but compared to poker it's nothing uh so all of these guys stopped playing and became like really good poker players and even the ones who like maybe weren't that good poker players were still making a lot of money back then. Right. Uh, so, so that's kind of like, and then like, you know, eventually like I was like, well, maybe I should look into this too, you know? Um, and yeah, I, I guess that's how I got into it. And I just got like fascinated with it pretty much right away. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I used to play magic myself actually, but much, much longer ago, like I, I kind of played for a while when I was a kid and then, uh, and then I guess it just wasn't cool anymore after a certain point at my school or something. So oh, I, I definitely uh, played it when it was not cool anymore. <laughs> I, um, I, yeah, like I, I changed schools a couple of times. So I guess I, I moved from a school where everybody played it to a place where no one did. So um, I, I, I kind of had to stop after a while because I had no one to play with. But certainly it was really interesting to me to come into poker and to know that there were so many people who came directly from Magic. So was it was it guys like David Williams and Justin Bonomo that were kind of in your sort of era of Magic players, or was that a different crowd? Um, actually, yeah. I mean, it was a little before that, to be honest. It was mostly, like, local Danish, like, like people who were... For, for people who don't know Magic, like, the Pro Tours, like, uh, like the World Series events, like, that's the big league. And all the people who'd done well there, like, like they were, like, you know, the endgame bosses of Magic. And they like kind of just stopped playing, and I was like, "Why? Why are you guys not playing anymore?" And they were just all too busy playing, you know, twenty tables of cash or whatever they were doing at the time. Uh, uh, I mean, you can, imagine, you can imagine how that would work in poker. You can you can presume that if if a bunch of high stakes guys just suddenly quit, then everybody would move. You know, things would move around pretty quickly. So I'm assuming it's the same sort of dynamic when the when the top yeah, guys. Yeah, and body. and like ma- magic is obviously that's not the intention of the game, but it is pretty much the perfect introduction to poker in a lot of ways yeah, for sure. uh, so you you kind of already have part of the skill sets while the games are very different it, like the the whole like kind of mindset and like not be results oriented and like work on your game and you know mm-hmm. sometimes like the best play won't win you win but you should still like analyze you know what's wrong and right and stuff like that so i i think that's part of the reason why like so many people early on 
succeeded. Uh, and even though I wasn't like the first, uh, like there, there were a lot of Magic players who did it before me. Like I, I felt like I got into it at a pretty good time. So yeah, that's how I got started pretty much. For sure, yeah. So so what kind of time period are we talking with when it comes to uh, you getting into poker? I guess, I mean, my, my assumption would be about 2007, 2008 kind of time. Uh, yeah, when I was 18. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, uh-huh. I mean, obviously, like, I was in school at the time when I first started, so it wasn't like, uh-huh. I wasn't doing it, like, full-time or anything like that. Right. Yeah. A lot of it was just, like, watching high-stakes poker or, like, any of the other TV shows, and, you know, playing a little bit with friends or, you know, like, uh, having a couple of beers and playing a home game or something like that. Uh, yeah. So, sure. I, so I, I knew the game at that point, but I wasn't, like, playing it professionally obviously uh uh-huh. yeah i see this is probably a good time to introduce uh the the i uh one thing i didn't don't think i mentioned to uh to derek is that around 2010 2011 kind of time mickey actually used to back me back in the early days of uh me me getting into poker so uh it's kind of a funny way that this has come come full circle here when when mickey was backing back friday i uh i played micro stakes for for his stable and i don't know if i don't recall if we ever actually like had a conversation on skype or anything back then because i think you were uh you were much more hands off in terms of the the running of the stable, but it was uh, it was kind of funny to um to kind of see myself rise through poker a little bit and to to be able to follow Mickey a little bit as well because I know that by the time 2011 came around, certainly you were still already by that point a name that um a bunch of people had uh, had had heard of. So it was kind of a, it was kind of a cool thing for me to have the chance to to play for you. So it's um yeah it's cool that things have come full circle in in just a few years like that. Um I think. Uh, I think one thing I'm curious about when it comes to people getting into poker as a, as a profession is a lot of people see it as kind of an alternative to a nine to five really. And they see it as something that they can get into as a way to avoid having to actually get a job. Uh, And I'm kind of curious as to whether that's something that appealed to you or whether it was just that you were so passionate about the game that that took over rather than just not wanting to get a job. I mean, it, it was like, let's not kid ourselves. Like, it, I feel like anyone who could choose would rather, you know, be their own boss than have a boss pretty much. Like, I don't think there are many people who would prefer it that way, but it was certainly not the reason I got into it. In fact, it was kind of more like, uh, I, I was. it's very common in Denmark. I don't know about it everywhere else, but you take a year off before you go to university um, uh-huh. to kind of save up some money, go do some traveling and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. so most of my friends were like, you know, working in a supermarket or working at a bookstore or something like that. Yeah. And I just figured it would be more fun to like try and give poker a shot. Like you don't, especially back then, like you didn't have to be that good at poker to make more than what I would have, you know, gotten as like a 19 year old or whatever, like working in a supermarket. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, so that's kind of the reason that I, I did it in the first place. And then the first year was just like so much fun. And I got to like, I obviously made some pretty good money and I got to like actually travel to poker tournaments too, uh, which was a lot of fun. So did the traveling part and whatnot. And then like I took a second year off (laughs) (laughs) and then the second year went, went better than the first year and so forth. And, uh, and now here we are. Um, and, and like at this point I don't really, I'm pretty happy with poker, but, uh, I'm Mm -hmm. also pretty happy with being my own boss. It definitely is very appealing that you you're, you're responsible for your own results a lot of the way. Mm-hmm. And also like the, the whole thing with like setting your own schedule and stuff like that is really nice. There's, there's a yeah, certain yeah. flexibility to it, even playing tournaments yeah. that is really for cool. Sure. Yeah. I, um, it's I think, very, sorry, carry on dark. It's very less common here in the United States to take a year off before university. Although some people do, 
but I really feel like it should be required. Yeah. Yeah. At the very least, it should be strongly encouraged. It, it, if I could get my son to do it, I would, but he's so excited to get, you know, to start living in the dorms with his buddies and ordering pizzas and playing <laughs> video games, which I can understand. Yeah. But he doesn't, I'm trying to make him realize you can do that from, you know, the mountains somewhere too. If yeah. You want to you know, go spend a year figuring out what it is you want to do. Mm-hmm. Cause half the time, by the time you get two years into college, you don't, you realize you didn't want to do what you thought you wanted to do anyway. Yeah, that's exactly, see, that's exactly what happened to me. Um, uh, I saw so, cause I took a somewhat of a different path in, in, into becoming a full-time poker player and it's really interesting to me to hear you say about taking a year out because i i kind of did i did the taking a year out thing or taking taking time to travel and stuff pretty much towards the end of my college time and and after college and then i came into poker after that and it was really only that time that time away from an environment of focusing on trying to get a job to earn money that allowed me to to understand myself to the point where i i recognized that poker was something i wanted to do so I feel like taking a year off and taking time to think about what you want to do with your life is really key for a lot of people. And, and certainly the people that um, the people that I know who've, who've become happiest as a result of playing poker have been the people who've, who've chosen to do it as a result of it being something they really want to do rather than people who've just been like trying to grind a, a full-time job at the same time. And then like earn a bit of money on the side and then fallen into playing poker full-time because they feel like they can earn more money, but they're not actually that bothered about it, you know? So yeah. It's, uh, I think it's really important um, and probably a big part of your success, Mickey, that poker is something you enjoy, you know? Um, oh, yeah, I, I'm very lucky in that regard, like especially back then. Like I, I still enjoy it a lot, but back then, like nothing was more exciting to, to me than like waking up and just registering as many tournaments as possible. Like there's no way I would have gotten that with like anything at university or any other like job. So like and I feel yeah. like that's yeah part of why, why I did pretty well during that period was just like. I was absolutely loving it and obsessed with playing and like it wasn't even about the money but yeah exactly it's a lot easier to have good work ethic if it's something you enjoy doing yeah I, I guess that's I guess that's what uh, that's a better way of, of encapsulating the point I was I was just trying to get through is that um I guess pe- there's different reasons that people choose to be professional poker players and I think the people who choose to do it because they think it's a good way to make a lot of money are usually the people who burn out pretty quickly. And the people who are motivated to actually play the game are the ones who stick around and ultimately make more money. So, um, yeah, I think it definitely seems like you're in the, in the latter camp there. So uh, I'm sure that's, sure that's worked out well for you. I'm curious as to the, um, we did, we did kind of, uh, touch on the idea of your, your day to day schedule and stuff there and the idea of being, being your own boss. So, so what is a, what is a kind of day in, in the life of you look like these days? How does your schedule work out? Um, well, these days I'd say like, I, I, I probably grind like an average of like four or five days a week, maybe. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I tend to start, uh, around three or something like that, play until, uh, midnight or so. Uh-huh. And before that, I will typically like do, go and get groceries, like, uh, go to the gym, like all that kind of stuff. Yeah. All the, all the um, things that everyone has to take care of. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I guess in that regard, like it's 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 pretty normal. Like I, I I've changed it up a bit. Like I used to, at any point, any year, like I've done it differently than the other years because in the beginning it was just like, like, and that was before Black Friday too. So the tournament schedule was a lot different. Like you had to start like later in the day, yeah, and, uh, and play like until like. I, I like I always saw the sun come up as the last thing. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> and like these days, it's obviously a lot better for Europeans. Uh, uh, absolutely. But, but back then, I would just like wake up, like 
take a shower, order a pizza, and just, like, go in and hurry up and register for, like, as many tournaments. I, like, it was terribly unhealthy in a lot of ways, um, but it was a lot of fun, and I got, like, a, like, I think it's okay to have, like, a period of time where you're very obsessive about the game and what you do. Um, but these, day, these days, it's a little more balanced, I'd say. Uh, I think everybody has to work through that period of being super obsessed by the game so that you can kind of get... Um, so that you can get back to the, the the balanced state that you need to be in, I guess. Like you, you kind of swing both ways a lot of the time. That you swing from the side of being super, super motivated of like being obsessed with it. Then it, you know, once you go so far to that side, you go back to the other side, and you end up being completely burned out. And you like you have to take some time away sometimes. So everybody needs to kind of go one way and then the other, and then kind of regress to the mean. I, I suppose after a while to find a schedule that balances and and to to find something that works for you. So, uh, so it's, yeah, I mean, it's good that you've, uh, that you found a schedule that works. And I think the interesting thing is that probably a lot of people outside poker would, would assume that poker players work shorter hours than, than the average. Whereas in reality, if you're, if you're playing like nine hours a day, four or five out, four or five days a week, you're grinding the same 40 hour week that everybody else is, if not more, because when you go deep in a tournament that starts at 9 PM or whatever, you're going to be up until three in the morning. And, uh, and I think sure the more, yeah, there, like, there's no doubt that like I play more hours and that's without like studying hours and stuff like that. That takes up a uh-huh. lot of time as well. Like, yeah. uh, like it definitely is a packed schedule in that regard. And that's why it's like so good to be something that you enjoy doing. Cause if mm-hmm. this has been anything else, there's just no way I would have been able to put as many hours into it as I do. Yeah. That's the thing. Like I think um, certainly it's, it's, it's somewhat different for me in that there are a lot of things outside poker that I'm, trying to work on as well that I'm trying to dedicate time to. So I have to work quite hard at not just balancing poker with like relaxation time, but balancing poker with non-poker um, work that I want to do, you know, but we'll get onto that, I guess, maybe a bit later if we have time. Um, I think the main thing though really is, uh, is the idea of health that we, we touched on just a second ago in that you mentioned that you had some unhealthy habits earlier in your career. And, uh, and I'm curious as to, as you kind of moved up and, become more conscious of, of yourself as a poker player how have your have your habits changed and have you become healthier in, in any respect like with regard to eating and exercise and stuff like that yeah i definitely think so like it's important to remember too like i said like back then the hours for mm-hmm. playing were so bad like realistically i would start at like six or seven in the evening and like end at like six or seven in the morning or something like that so like yeah. that in itself was super unhealthy mm-hmm. uh, so nowadays, like, I have a much better sleep schedule. Like, I try, like, once I'm done playing, I don't really, like, watch a movie or a TV show after or anything. Like, maybe I'll read a little bit, but I'll go, like, straight to bed. Like, I think, like, having good, like, just a good sleep schedule is so important, especially as a tournament player. Because mm-hmm. uh, oftentimes you will end up just, like, playing insane hours. So it's important yeah. to not, like, stay up even longer after that and stuff like that. Yeah, um, absolutely. Other than that, like, yeah, I just... I just try and eat better, like not drink, you know, like soda and pizza. And like, I mean, I, I still do from time to time. I'm certainly not perfect at all when it comes to health. But one thing I've found is just like, yeah. And I guess like in the last couple of months, I've started like going to the gym a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and just like in terms of like, like it's one of those things I've always like deep down, everyone knows like doing exercise is really good for you. 
Yeah. But I've just like kind of always chosen to ignore it for whatever stupid yeah, reason. That's exactly the same as me. Here. <laughs> um, completely. I'll, I'll, like I'll even I've even heard like really good players a lot of times in interviews will be like, oh yeah, it's so important for me that like you know I'm I'm in a good physical state and I do exercise and stuff like that. And I've I've sort of always just like whiffed it off. Like ah, oh, they're they're just good for other reasons, and they are. But a big part of it is also just like being in good physical shape. And I can definitely definitely feel now like beats and bad days and stuff like that it's just like bothers me a lot less and i have a lot more energy uh throughout yeah, my session so like i definitely mm-hmm. do think stuff like that like while i'm by no means perfect like it has helped me a lot and it's something i'm really going to try hard to continue to do this year like i feel yeah, like it's I, like it, it's like you should do it anyways like even if there were no poker benefits but there actually are poker benefits too so it's it's pretty inexcusable not to do it i think yeah i, I think you're completely right i think it's something that i clued into after a little while of, of playing, um, like I was trying to, I was playing kind of semi, semi full-time, I guess, or not, I suppose part-time is the definition of semi full-time, but I was playing part-time while, uh, while, um, while having another job before I, I turned full-time. And when I was doing that, like my other job was, was, uh, was making me, you know, making me tired and making me work longer hours. And I was still really motivated to play poker. So I was like drinking a bunch of energy drinks to keep me awake to play long sessions. And, I was just super unhealthy because I was never making time to exercise. And the difference in how, how good I feel day to day since I started making an effort to actually stay in, in better shape and to not, not just exercise for the sake of anything, anything along the lines of like getting in shape or losing weight or anything. It's, it's more just a case of when you exercise, you feel better for the rest of the day after that. You do actually have a higher energy level and you do actually, you know, you think more clearly. And, and I think people who are, people who get super tilted at the tiniest thing probably haven't realized the extent to which, you know, their, their mental condition could be improved by, by an increased level of health overall. So it's really, it's good to hear you say that because I think a lot of people benefit from hearing someone like you. I mean, it it just, like, and I'm not like, like I said, like I've been playing for a lot of years and just always ignored it um, and only been doing it for a couple of months. And I've just like, like you feel so much better and like, you just realize like, like before I'd be like, oh, like I don't have time for that. Like I'll miss the late Rick of like the hotter 33 or something like yes. that. Like, <laughs> in, like, and it's like, like that's really stupid, obviously. Like it doesn't matter if I get like a hundred dollars more in buy-ins in this hour, or, like whatever. Like, yeah. if like it's not, obviously you can't measure how much it like improves your RRI or anything like that, but I bet it does. Like, like it, it's just such a no-brainer, and it's kind of embarrassing. Yeah. I haven't been doing it before, but mm-hmm. yeah, I definitely encourage anyone who isn't doing that to to look into it. And yeah, like as I used to be like that, I would I would I would rush home. I would like get takeout just to like not miss like delayed registration of the hundred rebuy or something like that. And like that's how I used to be. And then I just sort of realized, like in the grander scheme of things, like it really doesn't matter that much. But like yeah, absolutely, because the you know the if you think about things in terms of like people have this concept that occasionally gets used by people who are like taking a holistic view of things people talk about the concept of life EV. And I think like, it might be plus EV in poker in the short term to like you say, to be able to get, I don't know, an extra X amount of buy-ins in a certain hour. But in the long term, it's much more beneficial to what you're going to get out of life 10, 15, 20 years down the line to spend time dedicating yourself to your health now and being oh. healthy while you're playing poker rather than like getting to the point where you're like 35 and you're too old to get in shape. And, and even though you made a bit more money playing poker, you can't do as much as you used to be able to do, you know? 
Yeah, like one thing I've really tried hard to do this year and that I'm having a fair bit of success with is like whenever you have a decision like that, I just try and think like one year from now, like what mm-hmm. would I have been happy like if I had done today? Yeah. Like if I think one year back now, I'm like, uh, I don't really care if I played like the hotter 33 a year ago, but mm-hmm. it would have been nice if I'd been, you know, going more to the gym and like I would have been in better shape now and feeling better in all that time. And it would have been better if I had spent more time you know, studying instead of, like, watching a TV show or something like that. So I feel like that's, like, at least for me, that's an approach that works. Yeah, no, I, I definitely I definitely agree, and I think uh, it's something that probably a lot of people could do with hearing because I think there's there's a lot of guys who, particularly early on in their professional careers and stuff, they try to make everything about poker, and they try to, they try to think, well, if I... You know, if I'm as if I continue this level of motivation, I'm I'm super motivated to play poker. So if I just keep this up, then I'm going to make so much money, and I'm going to make my whole life about making as much money as I can through poker. And they try to they try to shift that poker the poker mindset of doing the most plus EV thing into into real life, which you can't ultimately do because you can't make all your real life decisions regarding what's ultimately going to make you the most money. You have to make your life decisions regarding what makes you happiest and what is best for your long term kind of life development, I guess. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's gratifying to hear that you're kind of making decisions on that basis rather than just focusing on, on monetary EV because I think a lot of people fall into that trap. So um, so this brings us onto the topic of uh, of health and, and stuff with regard to your travel schedule because I know your travel schedule is, is pretty busy these days and you're traveling to a lot of EPTs and stuff. So how do you how do you kind of stay on top of things when it comes to that routine that you have going when, it, when you're traveling so much? Um, well, I, I guess the, the short answer is I don't, uh, <laughs> hopefully it's something I'll be better at, like going forward, but it's so easy to like, like that's the, that's the real danger of traveling. Like it's hard to, uh, you know, eat good food or healthy food. Like it's hard to, you know, go to the gym every time. Like there's always tournaments going on. And especially if you're like me, like, like even after playing a fair bit of live tournaments, whenever I bust a live tournament, especially someone somewhat deep, and you go back to your hotel room, I just always want to empty the mini bar and like eat all the <laughs> chocolate in there, and like that's pretty hard to resist. It's like it, it's stupid. It's stupid in so many ways. Um, so hopefully that's something. I will, sorry, people eat for emotional reasons. You know, people eat like if you if you suffer a bad beat, then the the first thing you want to do is do something that makes you feel better, and sometimes. Eating a bunch of crappy food is uh, it's gonna satisfy that little itch, you know. So uh, I guess yeah. Yeah. hopefully this year, like every time I want to, like I do that, I'll go to the gym instead of going to the mini bar. That would that's, be a good, that's probably a good policy. Yeah. yeah. Or uh, just, uh, just just don't bust tournaments, just win more tournaments. <laughs> that works too. Yeah, I was at CCA uh, like a month ago, and and that was like when I started actually like trying to go to the gym. Like I went almost every day, like while I was there. And, like, I've never had so much energy, like, during live tournaments. Usually I get really tired towards the end, like, just feel, like, sloppy in the chair, like, just feeling really terrible. And this time I felt so much better, despite, mm-hmm. like, busting every single tournament and, like, yeah. bubbling a lot of stuff. <laughs> like, I've never felt better. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to try and keep up with that. And then, like, obviously stuff like, just, like, something like protein bars is, like, something I've noticed a lot of guys doing because it's really easy to bring with you. Mm-hmm. and it's not too bad, and it will give you, like, pretty good energy throughout the day. Um, yeah. The, it's funny, if you if you look at, like, all, all the fit guys who are, like, traveling around playing the super high rollers, like, they're always with their damn protein bars. So I, I think I'm going to try that out this year. see how that works. Yeah. I suppose learning by example after a certain point is, is something that you can't really avoid, because eventually if you see 
if everybody who's in shape is uh is eating a protein bar, then eventually you start thinking, well, maybe there's a you know maybe there's a reason behind it. Exactly. Um, I think uh, it's funny because I noticed that same phenomenon. I, I haven't done, you know, I haven't played a lot of live tournaments and I haven't done a bunch of traveling lately, but I did, uh, I qualified for one of the France Poker Series events in the summer and I spent like five days out in France for this live live event and I didn't manage to work out the whole time I was there. I just kind of assumed, oh, well, you know, it, it sucks that I can't work out for a few days, but I'll, I'll work out when I get home. And uh, And it was amazing how... Well, I say amazing. It was terrible how how just crappy I felt after like two or three days of not working out, and it you know it really brought it home to me that I I've developed habits now having having worked out regularly for a while that like my my day to day well being is at least partially dependent upon whether I maintain the level of health that I've been trying to work towards. And after five days of sitting at a poker table eight nine hours a day like hunched over. Uh, you know, not really moving very much, only getting up to like stretch on breaks and stuff. You just, you feel terrible if you don't get some kind of an exercise in there or like you don't uh, at least work towards doing something to, to make yourself feel healthier because you just get worse and worse over the course of the, over the course of the tournament otherwise. And that's not what you want, especially at a tournament like the PCA, I guess. You don't want to be playing your worst poker towards the end of the event. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's And especially like, I mean, the the real test is something like Vegas, right? Where people go for like almost two months. Like, yeah, I feel like that's and that's like I was doing pretty well until Vegas last year, and that's where I just really slipped. Like, I didn't work out a single time while I was there or anything. Oh and you wow! Eat, like, yeah. and there's there's so much like anyone who's ever been to the Rio know it's pretty much all terrible food uh, unless you get it delivered. And like, there's so many traps in Vegas, obviously. So it's just like that's the real test. I feel like that's yeah. Where I'm so, was that was last year? I, I can't I can't recall how old you are. How how many times have you been to Vegas? Well, I've and actually been I've actually been three times now. Three times. Okay, cool. So how's it how's it been for you so far? Uh pretty expensive. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> guess uh, I guess if we haven't heard about you winning a bracelet, yeah, exactly. You. No, I yeah. honestly it's it's a lot of fun. I really like it, and it's just like it's sort of like like band camp like everyone gets together like there's a lot of people i only get to see the one time of the year like you know american yeah. grinders who who don't travel to the epts anymore like all these people you've met and and everyone goes for it and it's just a lot of fun and it's sure. i mean a lot of good value too like i've gone deep in a lot of stuff um just mm-hmm. obviously you know getting ninth for like 10 buy-ins or whatever is not going to be worth that much uh no. but but it, yeah, it's a lot of fun and good series. I always look forward to it. Like despite like the problems with how it's ran and stuff like that, there is something special about it. It definitely is a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of certainly a lot of prestige attached to the the whole event as a as a showcase for poker. Really, have you uh, have you looked at this this summer's schedule yet? Uh, yeah, I've, I've looked at I've looked at the schedule. It just came out like a couple of days ago, I think. And uh, and yeah, I mean, I I'm think I'm gonna go for the the whole thing again. That's the plan, at least. Hopefully, uh, by that time, have some a little bit of skills in some mixed games, so I can play a little bit of that too. That would be nice. Yeah, spend spend a couple of months grinding those uh, those random games. I, I know they they have like a. So they have a dealer's choice event on the schedule. That's going to be fun. Um, that that have, might like, be too ambitious. That's too many games. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't even know. Like, I, I can't remember the list of what games are included in that. But that just that sounds crazy. That sounds like it. It feels like it's one of those. Uh, I don't know those side events they have on the the other tours, like win the button events, or like those those ones where so, I don't know. Just these crazy rules are in there. So dealer's choice is, is pretty cool for a WSOP event. Um, yeah. What about like uh, I guess. 
with regard to WSOP, it's probably mostly a case of, of choosing um, choosing how you how you kind of organize your time over those couple of months that you're out there, right? Because you can't just grind like every single event and burn yourself out. Yeah, you definitely do have to take, I mean, I think I'm pretty good at going there and treating it like work. And mm -hmm. sort of, especially last year, uh, I was staying in an apartment that's like a five minute or maybe like a 10 minute walk from, uh, from the Rio. And it's sure. sort of like you, you get into a routine and you go there every day and like, uh, but yeah, you definitely do need to like enjoy yourself and take time off too, because if you play every single day, you are going to get burned out because there's always oh. a tournament somewhere in Vegas you could play. Uh -huh. uh, so, so it is about picking and choosing. And even sometimes like I, there was a couple of times where like for some of the big, like one case or 1500s, I showed up a couple of hours late, uh, late uh -huh. registered them, even though like, like the amount of big blinds you make in the early level in those tournaments are enormous. But uh -huh. just for the sake of like getting more sleep or not getting burned out or like uh, just starting a big bit shorter, I did that a couple of times. Yeah, it's probably. I mean, in in general, it's probably better to get that extra bit of sleep and and be more well rested and late reg, like at, you know, with fifty big blinds instead of playing a hundred big blinds deep when you start and then punting off your first fifty anyway. You know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, like I think that's a good. It's a good policy to have, and it, I think it's something that people can probably learn from in a lot of aspects of poker and that, um, you know, you don't necessarily have to be all about grinding all the time. Um, so yeah, that's good. How, how, um, I'm, I'm curious as well in the, in the last couple of years, obviously it's been maybe, I, I forget how long exactly, but maybe a couple of years since you joined stars team online. Um, and I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about how that's affected your, your schedule. Cause I know you're probably playing a lot more live poker than you used to. And does that, are the two correlated or is it just the decision you made that, you wanted to play more live? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, actually, actually, I feel like um, for the most part, whether I was with Stars or not, I would have played pretty much the same schedule. Like okay. around the time I got signed, like I was already going to like EPTs and stuff like that. I just uh -huh. wasn't cashing them, so no one really heard about it. Uh, <laughs> I've been grinding like satellites online for a long time. And, uh, and, cool. and yeah, I mean, it's been great. And I feel like I, I like obviously there comes some like, some different responsibilities with it than like I'm doing more than just playing poker now in a sense, like interviews and representing and stuff like that. And that's a lot of fun. Like it's a nice, nice change of pace and I'm enjoying it a lot. But as far as like my, my, my schedule for traveling and stuff like that, it's, it's pretty much the same. And as far as what I play online, uh, I mean, I've, I've moved up a bit in stakes uh, since I got signed, I suppose, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty much the same as I would have played otherwise. Cool. I mean, I think, I think um, certainly being an ambassador for the game is a, is a cool opportunity that um, obviously only a, only a certain few people get. But I I wonder if there's any change in your kind of mentality or the way you present yourself publicly as a result of being an ambassador for Stars now, or do you feel like you're still kind of just pretty relaxed and you're still able to be yourself? I mean, it, it, I I think like honestly, for the most part, I think I, I'm pretty much the same that I was before. Like, cause it's like I I think stars. Well, I hope they they signed me in the first case, cause they you know, like what I had to say and the way I presented it and whatnot. And it's not like they gave me like some big speech about oh you have to say this <laughs> yeah, to the company or anything like 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 yeah. I feel like I, I behave like pretty much the same. Obviously, like when you wear a patch, like like you get a lot of of questions and stuff like that, especially from people like who don't know what team online is. Like w whenever I go to play the world series, for example, uh, it will always come up because unfortunately you can't play there right now. 
Um, yes. so, so there, there will be times where like, you know, it, it will start conversations and stuff like that. But I feel like as far as like how I interact with people and stuff like that, it's, it's pretty much the same as it would have been otherwise. Okay. Well, that's cool. I mean, I think, um, it, it's good to, I think it's good to know that people who are representing major sites like stars or any, you know, any other site, I think it's good to know that those people are chosen based on the fact that they're already good ambassadors for the game and that, you know, that those sites are making good decisions based on, on who, who are the best ambassadors for them rather than just, you know, picking guys who, picking guys who are getting good results and trying to, trying to promote them. You know, I think a lot of people have this, it certainly seems from two plus two anyway, that a lot of recreational players have the mentality that the people who are representing the poker sites should always be the best players. And I, I feel like that's completely missing the point of why sites ask people to be representatives for them. So it's especially, have... especially with something like team online, which is like right. such a different group of like people, like not just in terms of what games we play, mm-hmm. but like also in terms of like, like there are people who are not full-time professional. There are people who are full-time. Like there are people like Ike Hacks and Akeno who are like some of the best cash players in the world. And then yeah. there are people like, grinding like no limit 100 zoom as their main game and there are people like playing tournaments and everything like in mm-hmm. people playing mixed game and stuff like that so i feel like that like the good thing about that is like like there's something everyone can relate to right like it's not just people traveling around playing all these 10ks and stuff like that like these are actually people grinding on poker stars like all the different games like on a day-to-day basis so i, I kind of like that about it like yeah whereas think- the, the, the pro group is more like you know, they'll all show up for an EPT or something like that. Like, obviously, that's fine, too. But I feel like this is more, like, uh, in touch with, like, you know, what the average player does when they play on PokerStars. Sure, I think I think so. And I think there's a there's a big misconception. Part of the reason why I wanted to do this first podcast in the first place was there's I think there's a big misconception among a lot of people about, you know, what it is to be a professional poker player and what it is to, to be somebody who makes the majority, who makes their living through poker. And I like, because a lot of the, you know, a lot of the time when you see the word pro attached to somebody or to, you know, a person who's in poker, a lot of the time that's with somebody who's sponsored by a, a poker site or somebody who's sponsored by a training site or, or some other kind of, um, some other kind of entity that is referring to them as a pro. And that kind of generates this perception that all of these people who are pros are like, separate from amateurs in some ways or separate from recreational players because they're the ones who are traveling around and they, you know, they make a ton of money and, and, you know, there's all this different lifestyle that they have. But in reality, I think you're right that a lot of the, a lot of the people who make a living playing poker are guys who follow the model set by the team online guys who, you know, they, they find a game that they like to play that they can win at and they spend a lot of time putting in hard work and, and grinding out the hours and making money that is, you know, deemed acceptable, like an acceptable level of income for them. You know, sometimes they're in different countries outside, you know, obviously both of us live in, I mean, as far as I know, you're in London right now, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So both of us live in the UK, which is a pretty expensive country, but there are plenty of people who live in other countries where the standard of living is in general a bit lower and you can make really, really good money grinding really low stakes poker for a living. And that, that person is a professional poker player. So the misconception is is definitely out there and I'm glad to, I'm glad to see people like yourself and people like the other team online guys kind of correcting that by, by putting themselves forward in a positive way for stars. Absolutely. Cool. Um, so in general, like we, we talked a lot about stuff inside poker, but I, I'm curious about whether you have any, um, any aspirations to, to kind of 
grow out of, or not grow out of, but branch out of poker and, and do anything else that's on your kind of career to do this? Like, I know a lot of a lot of poker players have ideas of like they want to start a business or they want to get into like stock trading and stuff like that. So, I I, I wonder whether that's anything that's on your agenda. Yeah, everyone everyone loves saying that in interviews to their want to start a business and they want to be an entrepreneur and stuff like that honestly for me though right now i'm i'm, I'm pretty damn happy playing poker like I, for me it's never like like the money is is obviously nice but it's like outside of like a certain amount i don't really need that much money like i don't really do much lavish spending or anything like outside of traveling i don't i'm not a person who like spend a ton of money or anything like that and similarly like Poker is something that I'm like just really like it's still like such a challenge for me. Yeah. It's still, like there's so much room for me to grow and like both in different games and types, even like in tournaments, I feel like I still have so much to learn and there's so much like undiscovered. And I feel like as, as long as it's going to be like that and it's something that I really enjoy doing, like I, I have a hard time seeing myself doing something else. Cool. Um, okay. I mean, and I especially with the flexibility that just comes with it, it's just like yeah. so priceless. For sure. I mean, yeah. That's not to say that I would never do anything else, but mm-hmm. I just I, I sort of made up my mind that as long as I could make a reasonable amount of money, like enough to live on and put yeah. a little away every now and then, and as long as I enjoyed it, I would. Uh, I, I mean, I think I'm going to keep on doing it. Now, if there comes a time where I'm not enjoying it anymore and it becomes a grind, I would mm-hmm. have to reevaluate and see if I could, uh, you know, yeah. put my skills to use somewhere else in some capacity, but. But right now I'm pretty happy just playing poker. I'm not one of those people who want to open like a chain of restaurants or like become like a, a stock trader or anything like that. Like I'm I'm pretty content playing poker, honestly. I know I noticed your uh, your Twitter bio says you're the only poker pro who doesn't put entrepreneur on his Twitter page, <laughs> which is uh, which is pretty funny. Um, that always makes me laugh every time I see that because it's so true. <laughs> yeah, I hate that. Like everyone just has it there. Like. Yeah. I mean, I'm guilty of that as well. And I don't put entrepreneur. I put writer on there, and and that's partly because. Part of the reason why I'm in poker is to hopefully give myself the freedom and the long-term flexibility to to get into what I want to do long-term, which is writing. But at the same time, like I I feel like there's kind of a stigma that some people feel is associated with presenting yourself publicly as a professional poker player. And I think that's kind of sad in that um, ultimately, if we're presenting ourselves correctly as as individuals and we're we're doing doing the right things and uh, we should be proud that we are people who are representing poker because that's the only way that the, the perception of poker outside of the game, like this, you know, old fashioned perception that people have of, of poker being about gambling and, and stuff like that, that, you know, that's the only way that's going to change if people present themselves well. So it's, it's cool that you're doing that. Yeah. And there, there definitely is this thing. Like, I don't think I've pretty much ever read like a poker. Like it, it's a question that gets asked a lot in interviews. Right. And I don't think I've ever seen anyone say like, Oh, I I just like playing poker. Like I'm not like everyone is like, oh yeah. Eventually, I want to expand beyond this or like I'm pretty happy and proud of just playing poker. Like uh-huh. it's I yeah. don't know. There's this weird thing I feel like where poker players feel pressured to say that oh I don't want to do this forever. I want to move on to something bigger or something different. Mm-hmm. I'm like yeah, maybe I will do that one day. But uh, I don't know. I try not to plan that much ahead. And like honestly. There's still a lot of money to be made in poker. It's still a lot of fun to me, and there's still like a lot of room for me to improve. So it's like, it's like right now, I'm pretty happy with that. Great, that's cool. So uh, do you ever? I know you're obviously most well known for for playing MTTs. Do you ever play any like cash or sit goes or anything on the side to to just improve and work on your game, or what, um, what efforts do you have? For that? Yeah, I've I've actually been uh, been playing a little bit of a 
No Limit 50 soon, uh, recently. Uh-huh. Uh, that, that's mainly to, to work on some concepts and just get a better, better idea of like, um, without uh-huh. getting too technical of like GTO ranges and like, uh, stuff like that. And other than that, I play like, I, I play a fair bit of like the steps and goes. Oh yeah. Uh, which are basically like 2100 euros, 700 euros and goes, uh, with EBT seats. Yeah. Uh, and especially like yesterday on Sunday, like five of the 2100 euros went off. So there's like a lot of action on those on Sundays and a little bit on weekdays. And those are a format that I put a lot of time into to studying. So, uh, so those are always a lot of fun. The swings are pretty big, but yeah, that's cool. I think it's, it's interesting though that, um, a lot of, uh, I think a lot of tournament players probably underestimate the, the extent to which the trans, I mean, not that I've done it myself but i i'm i'm sure that i would underestimate how tough the transition to cash can be sometimes and i think it's it's interesting that you yourself it, when you decide to jump into cash games like as a successful tournament player you're you're not jumping into like no limit 400 or whatever you're jumping into no limit 50 so anybody out there who's who's playing tournaments the majority of the time but occasionally dabbling in cash if you're playing like 20 dollar tournaments don't go jumping into no limit 100 you know because i, I oh, think that's a mistake that a bunch of people are making yeah if i jumped into like no limit for 100 i would get absolutely slaughtered like there's just no way because like it's and it's not that i think i'm like a bad poker player or anything but like most of the things the last couple of years i've been spending time like studying is like 20 to 30 or like let's say like 10 to 30 big blind scenarios with like various <laughs> icm considerations and andy's and like figuring out proper ranges for that and yeah. all of a sudden you're playing a game with no ICM that's like at least a hundred big blinds deep. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like much more static ranges. Like there, like there's just no way any of. Uh, obviously, some of what I learned would apply, but like not much of it. Right. Uh, exactly. So, you're you're so, learning the game, aren't you? Yeah. So from yeah. that sense, like it is very different. And like, mm-hmm. yeah, people should. I mean, I, they should just not assume. But like, I don't think anyone who's like. Very few people who are only good at tournaments would do very well in uh, in cash games, I don't think. Now, obviously, there are some really good cash players who have learned, like, the finesse of tournaments and are very good, but it's rarely the other way around. Yeah, but it does, it, I mean, in some ways, when you talk about, like, tournament spots having mostly 10 to 30 big blind stacks and stuff, if you're playing, like, turbo tournaments where most of the spots are going to be in that range, then if you took a cash player and put them in that situation, they wouldn't do that well either. So I do think... Well, yeah, I do think yeah, there's like there's no way around that. If like yeah. I'm not saying, like being a successful cash game player, you would still need to learn some of those things. Like there's yeah, like, exactly. no way around that because yeah. it is a big part of tournament poker is being short stacked. For sure. Yeah, I just I just think um I think people out there a lot of the time have have a misconception about what it is that the two games have in common and what it is that's different. In that a cash game player can be successful in tournaments because they're good at deep stack poker. Um. And, and, you know, a good, a player who's good at deep stack tournaments can be good at cash because deep stack poker is, is, is very similar regardless of whether you're playing for, you know, tournament chips or cash chips. But, um, you know, the, obviously the skills when it comes to shorter stacks and stuff like that are not so transferable. So, so, you know, if you're, if you're somebody out there who plays mostly turbo tournaments, then, you know, transitioning to cash is a completely different skill set. So be, uh, be careful of, of how, how quickly you try to jump into that situation because it's, Something you have to learn pretty pretty gradually, I would have thought. But yeah, that's that's kind of interesting to hear that you're you're dabbling in cash and stuff like that. I um I think one of the things that uh, dabbling in different games is is probably most useful for is is minimizing the the overall 
level of variance that exists in your game? Because I know MTPs can be pretty brutal in terms of variance. So is there anything that you, you kind of do on a regular basis to, to try and minimize the, the impact of, of obviously playing mid to high stakes MTTs? Because it's, it can get, like you said, I mean, we met, we talked off air earlier about you had a bit of a brutal Sunday. So uh, do you do you spend a lot of time trying to game select and minimize variance and stuff? Or do you just kind of play whatever you think is best? Well, here's like what, what I used to do was a couple of years, or like even like, I don't know, a year, a little more than a year ago, I was playing like, a lot of tables and I would play like a lot of like small to mid stakes tournaments to sort of reduce variance a bit. Um, so I would throw in like even like 22 freeze out or like an 11 yeah. buy or something like that to sort of reduce variance. And I do think mm-hmm. there's there's merit to that for sure. Like it is going to make your downswings uh, not as bad. Yeah. Uh, and, and like I think that is good for like now I'm at a point where like with my bankroll and everything I'm relatively i'm not loving it obviously but i'm pretty comfortable with the swings that yeah. comes with online uh uh-huh. so now now i'm sort of like not doing that anymore i'm playing less table and putting in a lot more time studying just because right now it's more important to me to try and become the best player that i can be rather than just trying to like like play a lot of tournaments just so my downswings will be uh like basically i've accepted that i will have some some bad downswings probably yeah. Uh, so, so if, like, there are definitely different schools of thoughts on it, and there, but there's nothing wrong with if you're grinding like mid stakes, like adding like some fifteen one eighty sitting goes or something like that that have like pretty small fields, mm-hmm. uh, and you know you're just kind of printing money in those hopefully, and and that will like help reduce variance a bit. And that's something I used to do a lot when I was like trying to take shots at the bigger stakes and stuff like that. I was definitely I had a lot of stuff in my schedule that would just help reduce variance, whether it be satellites or uh, the 180 sit and goes or whatever it would be. For sure, I think there's I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of guys out there playing low stakes who probably um, have some misconceptions about their own game as a result simply of the fact that when you're only playing low stakes, you're pretty much exclusively playing tournaments that have huge fields. Uh, if you're just playing NTTs, like because the guys out there who are playing like a ten dollar average buy-in, <clears throat> I mean the the ten dollar tournaments on Stars or whatever have usually fields of like two thousand three thousand players a lot of the time and if you look at fields like that, like it's going to take you such a ridiculously long length of time to actualize your ROI in that, that kind of field size that you're, you're ultimately going to need to add stuff in like 180s or some kind of, you know, tournaments on, on sites besides stars where the fields are smaller or, you know, something else you're going to, you're going to need to add in to, to avoid the potential for, you know, huge amounts of variance. So I think it's, uh, it's, it's certainly, interesting to hear you mention field size as as such an important factor because i think it's oh, something yeah. that field size is like like people like anyone like i'm there i don't remember the names but there are some calculators out there where you can kind of like fool around with those numbers but like that man they like like you would probably i'm I'm trying to think i'm not going to say anything too stupid now but i think you're <laughs> I've, like this is intuitive at least this might be wrong but i feel like people would be surprised if like if you could only play the sunday million for the rest of your life and you could only play like the the 1k super tuesday like i feel like even though this like sunday million is a much softer tournament like your downswings and that might be bigger than like in the super tuesday which usually gets like i call it a stupid thing at all like i i would would not be surprised if yeah that, like i'm not, i'm not saying it 100% is that way but just to give people sort of an example of like <laughs> a very soft tournament versus like a pretty tough one and it's like five times the buy in um but the structure is deeper and it gets a lot less players yeah, uh, so stuff like that, like, is is good to keep in mind. Like, 
Yeah, sure. That's another thing. Like when people, and I always like felt pretty strongly about this when people take shots at tournaments. Mm-hmm. It's somewhat like I, I think there's a misconception about it. Like people say, "Oh, I want to take a shot. I'm going to take a shot in the Sunday Million," mm-hmm. uh, and it's like, "Yeah, it's it's a really good tournament. Your RI is probably high, but you're going to get first like less than in any other tournament." Yeah. So like when when ta- like it actually makes more sense. Um, to take shots in things with smaller fields, absolutely, and yeah. bigger fields. Like, like I've taken shots and like, like, like I played last year, like uh, a 10k high roller euros that only got like 10 people or something. Actually, yeah. got 10 and a half people. We let one person do a half rebuy. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, like, a, like a tournament like that is great to take a shot in because like I'm yeah. gonna win it like fairly often, right? Yeah. Whereas yeah. if I was playing like a 2K turbo with like a bunch of people, like I'm, like that would be more sensible for me to sell action to probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I just think that's like a big misconception. Field size definitely matters a lot in terms of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's why there are you know there are a lot of guys out there who who start playing low stakes, you know, because that's what they can afford, which is obviously you know standard. Um, and they start playing on PokerStars because PokerStars is the biggest site, and obviously I I think it's completely. It's completely right that basically everybody who's playing online poker who can play on PokerStars should be on there because that's where all the biggest tournaments happen. But at the same time, if you're exclusively playing low-stakes stuff on PokerStars, it's going to take you so long to even work out whether you're a winning player or not. That, like, unless you're grinding massive amounts of tables, you're... Yeah, gonna... I mean, the good thing is that there are, like, always... Like, you can always load up a lot of tables there and, like... Yeah. Like, you can pretty much decide yourself how much volume you will put in. And also, in those tournaments, your ROI will be a lot higher. So, like, like the variance, like, it'll still be bad, yeah. But, like, people might, it's interesting, like, it, like I don't know the exact, like, this is off the top of my head, but it's possible that people, like, would be better off taking a shot in the big 109 on, like, a Friday or Thursday where the field is pretty small than, like, the Sunday million. Uh, you know, yeah. if you were just to take a shot in, like, one tournament or something like that. Yeah, I'm not saying don't take a shot in Sunday million because... That's that's <laughs> how dreams come true. It's a, and it is a really good tournament, but yeah. it is just something to keep in mind sometimes. I feel like yeah, for sure. Like as as somebody who as someone who's done a lot of coaching lately with students who are playing that kind of low ABI, I I think it it's certainly I would you know be more comfortable with with guys who are were taking shots at those those tournaments like the big one hundred and nine that that have like I mean the big one hundred and nine gets like what five hundred six hundred sometimes on a on a Friday or a Thursday, like you say, yeah, and that's about right. yeah. it's a much more manageable field size than, you know, the, the traditional stuff that people take shots at. Like, even even the Sunday kickoff, which is the same buy-in as the, the big 109. Oh, that's a really good example. Yeah, the Sunday yeah. kickoff is a good example. Like, you'll make more money on average in the uh, Sunday million, but the problem is I've been playing it for five years, and I've never even come close to the final table. <laughs> that's, exactly, that's exactly it. You can play the Sunday million for so long and never get anywhere, you know. Yeah, honestly, I got 80 in it last night, and I feel like it might have been my deepest run, if not certainly close. Like, I, I've never gotten top 50 in that tournament. Like, it is just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got, I think I got 86 in it once last year, and I, uh, <laughs> I, I lost a chip lead pot running queens into kings and aces, um, and uh, and that, that sort of shit happens. And like that at the time, I obviously that you know it's just me moaning about a bad beat, but um, like I, I know that that you know the chances of me getting 86 in the Sunday million or better are not high. Like that, that I could play that, you know, every week for the next however long and I may never get better than 86. And people think that like, it's something that, 
you know, people think that Sunday Million, final tabling and Sunday Million is like something that obviously only skilled players do. But in reality, it's completely the opposite. Like you look at the average Sunday Million final table and there's, there's going to be at least six like random random guys on there who, who just ran it insanely good to get there. So it's, um, Which is an argument for playing the tournament too, because it means that the weakest players will make it far too. Like it's, it, it's yeah. just yeah. a tough thing. Like people, like you probably need more money to play the Sunday Million every week than most people realize, I guess. Yeah, I think that's that's probably the gist of what we're getting so, at. So you might be better off selling some action for it or swapping a little bit or something like that. Yeah, uh, that's if you're going to make it like a regular shot you take every week. Mm-hmm. That's so. probably a good conclusion to come to. Um, what, what In terms of selling action and stuff, is that something you do pretty often? Um, I did it a little bit last year, um, but now I'm like, it, it was too much hassle, basically. Now I basically just do it for, for certain live events. Uh-huh. Um, and it, I mean, it depends on what it, obviously like, like, it, like EPT high rollers, I sell action for, uh, main events. I don't really sell actions for, but I'll do like swapping before the tournament. Like I have a certain group of people that I often, often swap with. Um, uh-huh. and, and like, I feel like that's like a pretty, if you can find people and you all believe you heard similar skills, um, like that, that's one of the easiest way to like reduce variance a bit. I feel like. Uh, especially mm-hmm. to those live tournaments. So I, I do that. And, uh, yeah, I'll sell action for some of the bigger stuff or some of the stuff where my ROI might, might be lower. Like, uh, like, like for example, like, the way I think about Bangrel, like, I'll, I'll give an example from PCA, mm-hmm. uh, was that I played, like, a 5K turbo that I sold pieces off, like, at no markup or anything, but just to, like, because it was, like, a pretty tough field and it was a turbo and it was a 5K and I didn't really want to, you know. But then I also had, like, pieces for 8k of people into 100k so it's not just like like i had like two percent of four guys so it wasn't like big pieces or anything but it's not like like i'm fine with selling some of my own action and like i don't need to have all 5k of myself in that one like if that sort of makes sense like i don't mind splitting up like how i invest my money a bit uh so i'll sell for some things for sure yeah sure and i think i think certainly like if you're if you're the kind of person, it's probably more relevant for live poker than online because, like you say, selling stuff online, um, it tends to unless you have like a circle of friends that you do it with, it tends to get complicated and it tends to be there's all this you know you, you're, you every like every every week you read a new thread on two plus two of somebody who got scammed by selling a bunch of pieces and and you know or I don't know all that sort of stuff goes on these days. But um, I think certainly selling selling action to live stuff is is probably something that a lot of Guys who play sort of low to mid stakes live stuff occasionally, guys who take shots at the like three hundred to five hundred dollar range, um, can probably learn from in that if you if you're if you and like three friends are gonna take a shot at a five hundred dollar tournament sometime, then you know, swapping pieces is probably a pretty good idea for all of you if you're of roughly equal ability, because it's certainly gonna help reduce variance and it's gonna it's gonna provide you a, a bit more of a platform to hopefully make some money. because um, I think certainly as a perspective of someone who's been playing online full time for a couple of years now and gone through some pretty big downswings. There's, there's never you can never really underestimate the extent to which MTPs will uh will continually kick you in the head with variants. So um <laughs> so for sure it's like it's it's really interesting to to hear about the kind of practices that someone like yourself who is seemingly at the top end of things you know you're you're still making efforts to reduce variants all the time, especially in these these live high stakes stuff. So that's uh, that's interesting. Um, do you play a lot of those those high rollers on EPTs and stuff? Um, I I feel like last year was the year when I I sort of started doing it. Like I played the the 25k last year at PCA. It was like my first high roller I played, and uh, right. and 
just got proteins and that straight off the bat. So obviously thought they were great value. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're like, uh, and, and like, the, I guess like after, like in the later part of this year, I've done an effort to, to play all of them. And I imagine I will be playing all of them this year too. Uh-huh. Uh, at the EPTs. Yeah. They're just a lot of fun, honestly. And it's, it's, it's a interesting mix of players they got. Like it, it's, it's certainly not like, you know, the greatest RRI tournaments in the world or anything like that. But I think there is value to be made in them. And like, yeah. and yeah, they're, they're good tournaments, but I'll sell off pieces when I play them for the most part. So just, I'm, I'm very curious actually as well. Um, but I, I guess we'll probably bring this to a close fairly soon, but I'm curious about what your opinions are on the, the hundred K high rollers that are running these days. Now I know it's, I mean, it seems to me pretty unlikely that I, I don't think I've ever seen your name on the list for one of them. So I don't, I doubt you've ever played one, but, um, it seems to me that everybody has a controversial opinion about them these days. So just curious what you think. Uh, yeah, it's true. I haven't played any super high rollers yet. Although I wouldn't 100% rule it out happening this year. Uh, but it's it's like it, I would have like a small piece of myself if that happened. Right. It would have to be a good one. Like it would like like the G Dam Millions thing they had last year was like an amazing oh, one. Like the one the in was so good. Yeah, the one in Macau, right? I remember I remember watching that on the live stream, and it was for for a hundred k. It was crazy how low the standard was, except for except for uh, Pratush Badiga and Ike Haxton. <laughs> yeah, I mean they were just like they they were really good at getting a lot of recreational players to to yeah. get to that tournament. Like that's a tournament that like you know I I probably play a lot of stuff that's tougher than that tournament, honestly. Uh-huh. But at the same time, it's obviously a hundred and thirty k. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and right. I don't have that kind of money, and I don't know if people would want to invest that kind of money. I don't even know if if the tournament will happen again or not. But that would just be an example of something where I could see myself putting yeah. up like fifteen or twenty k or something because it's a really good shot to take. I think uh-huh. for sure, um, yeah. But, but as far as my opinion of them goes, like I honestly I don't like I, a lot of my friends uh, play them, and I usually get to buy like small. Like I'm part of a group where I sort of get to buy pieces of some of those guys so i mean i i usually have some money in them i I quite like them like i don't really i people seem to have like i guess people's problem is like stuff like the hendon mop all-time money list and gpi um and like honestly i don't care that much about either like they're both like great things and great companies run by great people and i think it's very healthy for pogo for there to be lists and i'm all for it whether it's uh, hand and mob or pocket fives or world series of poker bracelets like it's fun and it gives people some but for me personally i don't care that much about it and uh-huh. the thing is those those 100 k's like well first of all like none of the pros are putting up 100 k's you know, like i mean <laughs> right. that, like, that's just the reality of it unless you're you know there are there are few people who do it but most of the people who put up 100k are successful businessmen or something like that uh mm-hmm. I just I I just don't really see the problem with it. Like the money it's taking out of the poker economy is not really coming from anywhere else. And I think mm-hmm. that's like like it's not like you know like someone playing the one drop this summer would have put that 1 million in buy in somewhere else like some recreational player. Like no, it's someone who just had a million and wanted to play this tournament. Like it's right. it's not like like I think it's a much bigger issue that like one case of re-entries or, you know, 1,500 and, like, getting raked over and over again and the pros go deep in those tournaments, like, the WPTs and stuff like that. I, like, I think that's, like, yeah. so much more of a big issue than, like, what people do in the 100 case. Like, like yeah. I, the 100 case is just, like, their completely own thing. Uh, and they make for great TV and stuff like that. I mean, I, I really have a hard time, like, seeing the problem with them, honestly. 
Like, except for, unless you buy into the whole, like, hand and mop thing, which, I, like, personally, I just don't care that much about because, I mean, there, there were, I'm sure there were, I haven't checked the numbers, but I'm sure there were people last year who cashed for, like, several millions who ended up being down, right? Because you get, can get so much in buying in those things. Exactly. Yeah. I'll never be at the top of that list anyway. So I'm okay with it. <laughs> yeah. I, personally, I'm I'm obviously deeply invested in the Hendon mod these days because I have two flags on there and they're both. Oh, the man. I'm is one of them an Isle of Man flag. Both of them are. I've I've cashed two live tournaments in my life and they're both Isle of Man. So um, <laughs> I uh, I'm I'm very proud of my Hendon mod page and uh, and I almost don't want to ever play any live poker again just to keep it that way. But um, I I think that's unlikely. Uh, so I think, um, yeah, I think people invest too much in the idea of like what your overall caches are, because yeah, obviously if you look into it, even the slightest amount, it's definitely possible to cash for a ton of money and be down on a year or down on your career. Even you can have 5 million in caches in your career and be down in live poker. So I think if people, if people looked into it, they'd probably realize that it is ultimately fairly meaningless, but at the end of the day, it is, it is weird that like, like for someone like me who think of myself as like, at professional and travel around and like play a lot of the bigger tournaments, but not like yeah. the super high rollers, obviously. Like yeah. I will probably just never be able to crack like the top 50 and hand on mob or something like outside of winning like the world series main. Like it's just not possible because people are just cashing too much, like min cashing hundred K and stuff like that. Like, like there are yeah. like so many people are going to cash the one drop this year and just like, you know, have well over like a million or 2 million or whatever in caches. Yeah. Uh, so in that sense, like, it is a little, I don't know, silly. Like, maybe maybe they should do, like, a hand and mop without super high rollers or something. Like, you could filter it or something. I don't know. Like, but at the end of the day, like, I I just don't see the problem. Because it's not money going out of, like, the poker economy, like I said. Like, that would be my main concern. Like, I don't understand why people are upset about this, but don't seem to care, like, that all the other main events are like re-entries and like where people are getting raked all the time and stuff like that. Like, I, I just think that's so much more of a bigger issue that affects like everyone. Like when you see like it's all pros making final tables at those like WPTs in America. Like, I'm not sure what tournaments it are, but it seems like some of them you can re-enter like a ridiculous amount of times. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it's just like kill, kills the recreational player's chance of going deep. Like, and, mm-hmm. and like the money doesn't come back in any way. Like, I, I just... I don't understand the fascination with super high rollers, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. I think um, I think people, certainly recreational players or people who casually kind of read about poker on forums or whatever, are very um, they get very caught up with the amount of money that it actually is. And like there's this big thread that's come out on well, in two plus two lately on on the the news and gossip forum, which is not something that you ever pay too much attention to. But it's kind of interesting to me that people are getting very kind of up in arms about the fact that a bunch of guys for example, bought into the 100K Aussie millions more than once or bought into the 250K even more than once. And I think people are getting way too caught up in the amount of money that that actually is and, and saying, oh, these guys have got like half a million to just throw away on two buy-ins, like buying in for 20 big blinds with 250K or whatever. Like people are making way too many assumptions about that and just caring too much about it, frankly. So it's kind yeah, of... But it's, it's also like, yeah, like, yeah, some people like, like obviously I'm, or I, like I'm, very good friends with Timex and I'm happy he did so well like down in Aussie millions like he had an insane run in both the 100k and 250k and it's like and obviously he had like a PCA before that so he's had like an absurd year but it's like it's like so Mike won a lot of money but it's like no one talks about all the people who went to Aussie million and just like lost a million playing super high rollers like you know what I mean (laughs) or like like, someone like punt away a million playing cash or whatever you know 
Yeah, but it's just like silly that people have so much fixation in these lists. Mm-hmm. And yet like I'm sure like after the one drop this summer, like I'm sure someone will end up down more than like two million in super high rollers this year. And it doesn't even have to be like a bad player, like it could be an excellent player. But it's over 20 tournaments or something, and it's mostly excellent players. Like, there's going to be a ton of variance. So yeah, I just I just think it's kind of silly to fixate too much about how many rebuys someone made, how much they've cast for in super high rollers. Yeah, like, it's, it's just kind of a different world, I feel like. Yeah, I think ultimately what it comes down to is people are conditioned by other other kind of fields like sports and, and I don't know, business or whatever else. People are conditioned to be able to, to, to want to be able to measure something or to, like, quantify who's the best or who's like the most successful and ultimately in mtts you're never going to be able to do that with any kind of accuracy because like even even whoever's at the top of the all-time money list until there's an all-time money list that doesn't include any like you said until there's an all-time money list of like tournaments below a certain level you know there's there's always going to be a bunch of variants included in that and you're never going to be able to say with definitive certainty like based on results who's the best player so People, people really kind of have this fixation with, with results to, to judge performance. And ultimately, that's the one thing you probably shouldn't be using in the short term to judge. One thing, yeah, especially with the Austin Millions, like as people might know, like Umi, who's like one of the biggest grinders online, like won the main event. And yeah, I felt like there was like so little talk about that. Everything was just about how many times people rebought in 100K or 250K and like, Without knowing anything, like I would guess he probably uh, made more money off that tournament than like most of the people who cashed the high rollers. So, yeah. so in, in that sense, like, and I, I don't remember how much he won, but he probably won like over a hundred buy-ins. So, like, I don't know what exactly what he won, but I'm sure it was like compared to like talking about hundred and two hundred and fifty k's where people win like I don't know like ten or fifteen buy-ins or something like that. Right. Exactly. It's, and, and, it's gotten and, a little out of hand, I think. With the way the media portrays it especially yeah that's exactly it because ultimately it's in it's in the, the media's best interest to portray poker as much as as much as possible well i mean it's in a lot of people's best interest to portray poker as a game of skill but there's a fine line because you you can't necessarily invite people to draw a line directly between oh well this guy won a tournament therefore he played the best because that's never going to be true so it's yeah it's really interesting to to have have these discussions about blurred lines in this in in these kinds of fields because so many you know so many people get caught up with the amount of amounts of money that are in play but ultimately you know the the results they are what they are and, and it's it's going to be in much people in most people's best interest to focus much more on their own game and where they are rather than thinking about how all the high stakes pros are getting on which i guess is kind of the point of this podcast again like i say to, to sort of hopefully give a bit more of a clear perception of how you know how professional poker players operate and and how someone like yourself uh, goes about the game, so I think uh, I think this is probably a good place to to bring things to a close fairly soon. So um, yeah. I think that's uh, that's been a pretty pretty productive discussion. So thanks very much, Mickey. Um, it's been been great having you on. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, cool. thanks a lot, Mickey. It's, uh, that was really insightful, and uh, hopefully everybody out there enjoyed it. Um, for people listening, where can they find you online if they want to kind of keep up with your uh, <laughs> results and your uh, and your poker lifestyle, uh, if you will? Well, obviously they can go on the PokerStars client and uh, find me as Mement underscore Mori. That's the name I play under, uh, mainly tournaments, but dabbling a little bit else. And if they want to follow me otherwise, there's uh, always Twitter, and uh, I'm uh, at MickeyDP. Uh, so, yeah, I guess that's the two main reasons. And if you see me somewhere, uh, come up and say hi. 
<laughs> Very cool. Well, good luck at the uh, at the World Series this summer. Uh, sounds like you'll have a pretty full schedule. So uh, hopefully we'll see some results. And uh, thanks to everybody for listening today. Thanks again to Mickey for joining us. And we hope to see you guys back here next month on Midstakes Living. Thanks, guys. Bye bye.